Welcome to Fret Buzz the Podcast. My name is Joe McMurray. And I am Aaron Suchik. And today we are sitting down for a conversation with Barry Privet, the lead vocalist and songwriter and manager of the band Carbon Leaf. Incredible band that has been touring for 25 years. They've been grinding it out successfully. I, I really love their music and I, I even went to a concert of theirs uh, a few weeks ago. I was telling Aaron part of why I'm so interested in, in talking to you because you're like you're very successful on this long range. Like 25 years is success in my mind. You're not MTV for the most part. I don't know if you have been, but you're not like Katy Perry. You're like actually out there working, which is far more interesting to me. <laughs> it's much more interesting than a Maybelline contract. <laughs> yeah. So no. Sometimes I wonder. <laughs> well, at least for the for us looking in, it's very interesting. Yes. Well, um, it's uh, funny you mentioned Katy Perry. She was in our first video, our second video. That's what Aaron was wondering about. Yeah. But um, yeah, you know, it's um, we uh, we early on. Yeah, I think some bands click and gel and. You know the thing that they have just kind of gets broadcast and people embrace it and it, things are a lot easier for us you know we it took us a very long time for us to kind of figure out what we were what we were doing as a group musically and you know during this period we were just kids you know we we were just kind of kids just feeling it out and and took a while for the sound to get there and so uh you know we couldn't couldn't really buy help you know we had to we had to learn to do everything ourselves um and and did and and a lot of our career has been like that there's there's a brief period where you know through through doing things ourselves we kind of got to where we felt like we were in a good place and and then got some attention but it didn't start like that you know okay. wasn't this, there wasn't this fireball you know <laughs> wasn't like Dave Matthews band, you know, that's just like, they get this magic kinetic thing together. And then like, you know, all these people were just like beamed in on it and then picked up by the management and the label right. and all that. So right. Right. We no. kind of had the, we kind of had the, the workman's approach. Um, and, you know, we're able to, I think in, in, in at the end of the day, kind of, kind of saved our necks on, on more than one occasion when, um, when we had to pick those reins back up after having a bunch of team on board, that stuff kind of comes and goes. And a lot of what kills bands is that they don't have those skills. You know, if they get early success or they get a lot of handlers, they don't know how to run their own business. And uh, you know, once some of that stuff goes away and you've got this top heavy thing that you're trying to learn how to manage, then, you know, it can kind of crush you. That's that's fascinating. Did you were you coming out at the same time as Dave Matthews just down the road? <laughs> and you guys were like within a hundred miles of each other. Yeah, they you know pretty similar time. Yeah, they um I think they formed maybe in eighty nine. Um and we we formed in like ninety two, ninety three. Um mm -hmm. so by the time we had like just started playing they were um they were like a year away from being like 
blowing up right um and and by that time like in 93 i mean they were doing kind of regular gigs i think it tracks and flood zone on the tuesdays and wednesdays you know the free shows or the five dollar shows or whatever um so they were they were definitely getting getting a buzz but you know our first our first outdoor show as a band was on campus at, at our alma mater randolph macon um up here in ashland virginia uh for earth day spring of 93 um, and it was opening for Dave Matthews. They were headlining the, the, the college, the campus concert. But there was only like 200 people there. So they were still very um, under the radar for a lot of, a lot of people. Um, but then I think, I think Under the Table and Dreaming came out like a year later. Uh. And, then, and then so our paths, yeah, while well, we kind of started within the you know, three or four years, you know, w- you know, we were just like a cover band and, and they were, you know, they they kind of we kind of this, the trajectories kind of went like this, right. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, but, and it took us eight years to kind of get out of the you know we're a cover band we're just having fun mm-hmm. wait we're gonna let's do this seriously. Well, if we're gonna do this seriously, let's let's not play covers. We're not enjoying that. Let's try writing. Took us some time. Was that ninety five album Meander the first original album? <laughs> Yeah, so we recorded the uh, we uh, the very first recording we did was a four song demo tape, mm. and we did that at a friend's. Uh, Tommy Gwaltney did that did that at his house studio in Virginia Beach, because uh, he was into engineering and all. So we recorded in his in his house. We had amps, everything spread out through through his house, and uh, he did a good job. And we cut cut four songs, our first four songs, and we handed we um, we we would dupe those. Um, for that whole that whole year when we were starting to play out we would um we had we had all these task cam uh tape decks stacked in the in our living room and we would just we would just hit record on you know these things and 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 make dupes and then we would hand we would throw those out at shows that was kind of like our thing i'd pull out a backpack at a certain point and i'd throw these things out we did that for a couple of years before we made meander which was our first album and like a cd so it was like a big deal because you know cds were like (laughs) we can put this on a cd you know yeah and um four of the songs that were on the demo made it onto the the uh the meander album so um that was our that was our first official full-length record there were a couple of those songs that had a very uh red hot chili peppers and kind of vibe and one actually kettle had a very uh pearl jam feel to it well yeah and if you wanted to keep going i mean that album was basically you know red hot chili peppers meets pearl jam meets nirvana meets rem it was like our first 12 songs as a band Hmm. and the five of us had very different influences our bassist at the time palmer stern's original bassist was super into chili peppers so yeah even if we were like writing a ballad, he was like slapping, <laughs> and, um, you know, and, but when you're young and you're, you're, you're writing your first, you know, group of music, as you all, I'm sure know that, that feeling of being, you know, just young, you're in a room doing this. The, the, the energy is just like, so kinetic that yeah. you're creating something. It's like, everything's allowed. It's like, that's great. You know, <laughs> you're not, yeah. you're, you're not scrutinizing a whole lot at that point, right. which is actually really a nice kind of pure state to be in. 
you know, and sometimes you wish you could get back to that, you know, um, cause sometimes I feel like, I don't know, I, I would say part of me is we've gotten really good at, at censoring ourselves for good reasons. And then part of me says, you know, keep an open mind. Let's right. just, you know, let's try this. So that album, it was all over the map stylistically. Uh, and it was, you know, and I, th I think there's like, I think there's like five or six good songs on there <laughs> and the rest are not good songs, but it represented a time in, you know, a time in our career where it, it was everything in the kitchen sink and there wasn't a whole lot of judgment on it. And for that reason, I think it was kind of a, it's nice to look back and say, this is the start for better or worse. Right. It's probably something on there that each band member really liked. I've with a lot of my bands, I've there's a song that like, I might not have liked one song, but it's my bass player's favorite song. Right. Like, that seems to happen. Cause everybody's just got different things. Yeah. They like more. Yeah. Um, and you, and you know, you're, you don't have any, you don't have any real rapport yet as artists with one another you know you don't you don't quite know how to use constructive criticism uh or facilitative language hey i really love this part what about this other part here maybe maybe we could do something differently you know you don't really have that have that language and, and we had to learn that language in subsequent records and you know it definitely got uh contentious and it was hard not to offend or be offended um, but we all kind of had to take our lumps and, you know, I, I remember several instances where, you know, I was, I was called out for, you know, things that just weren't good, um, either thematically or vocally or, uh, or what. So, you know, it's just part of growing up and, and working with, with people in a, in a very sensitive thing where you're collaborating artistically yeah, you put your heart out there and then when somebody yeah. criticizes it, it it's hard to accept that a lot of times yeah there's there's songs like on that uh, since you're talking about that album i mean you know i'm thinking through it um i mean there's there's definitely i definitely remember not really liking certain uh certain things about it you know the bass was a good example where palmer is a great bass player and had a great ear for melody and was dexterous and you know i i leaned more towards the more melodic stuff and so whenever he started slapping i just it it wasn't that it wasn't cool or or interesting it's like i didn't know quite what to do with it because i didn't grow up on a lot of that kind of music mm -hmm. you know so so i'm trying to write my way into you know his his vision for the song and we're you know both coming from different places so sometimes you can collaborate and come up with something fresh and original and it's amazing mm -hmm. sometimes you can collaborate and come up with something that's um different <laughs> but maybe doesn't hit the mark yeah you get a fusion of everybody's influences and that could be something really special that you wouldn't have ever been able to come up with on your own right and and you know part of part of the the if it's one thing we've learned about, you know, the pursuing art is that you can't be, don't be so precious with it, with it that you don't experiment and that you don't, um, you know, write those songs that fail. 
Because mm. frankly, you, know, you might be able to take a little teeny piece of that to to use down the road and make something you know better. So I guess you've got to kind of not hold back on on just trying stuff so that you let the if there's going to be stinkers, you may as well get them over get them over with. Yeah, there's no better way to learn, really. Right. Sometimes it's uh, I know that sometimes it's hard to like you were saying before. Um, sometimes you're presented with an idea or something from another member, and you don't really know what to do with it. Um, but you got to at least try because yeah. on the other side of it, you may come up with something that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and some stuff will sit. I mean, you know, and that's a frustrating thing I know for the guys. You know, we're we're a band. Um, I write the lyrics. I come up with the themes and the concepts and the vocal melodies and all that's mm -hmm. kind of my, my thing. Um, mm -hmm. and then, you know, it, historically the guys would write a piece of music or, um, or they would get together in groups of twos or threes and, you know, they'd either have a, a little sketch or a, a hook or a verse or, um, um, or even a whole song. Uh, and they would, they'll, they'll send it to me. And, um, and, and I'll take it and I'll, I'll kind of funnel it into my system of, of things to listen to and, and then see what bubbles at the top. So there could be songs that they're submitting for me that, you know, sit on the shelf for years and years and years and they never hear from it again until maybe one day something strikes me and I pull it out and, you know, we have a song. Mm -hmm. um, so they've, they've kind of learned that, that, um, to, to to just keep trying stuff keep floating it out there but not like get real hung up on the turnaround time you know right 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 when you write your lyrics do you write are you inspired from the overall feeling from the 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 stuff that they submit to you or is it more of a, a subject matter that you're kind of applying to the song or it's um mix of it's happened both ways. Um, it, I would say more, definitely early on, more about uh, listening to the music and then seeing what's going to come from it. Right, okay. And that still remains kind of the easiest way for me mm. to to get my ideas. That's my springboard, you know. Um, and I'm lucky because the guys, you know, have different styles and, and skills and sounds and textures and, and genre styles. So I get a bunch of different um, pieces of music that I'm allowed to kind of go in some different different directions. Right. Um, and that's the that's the easiest way, you know. If you have a song like um, "Lake of Silver Bells," you know, um, really, the 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 for me that concept and titling just came from this weird overtone sound within the recording that I don't even think was deliberate. And I was like, what? you know, I'm like leaning in. I'm like, what is this? What is this real shimmery kind of weird sound? And to me, it just like um, it started evoking this this place, you know, this this bell and this lake and this house and this all of a sudden the song kind of just started gushing out um but but then there's other other um other things that i do um either keep a notebook of ideas um and um or if i have an idea i'll pick up a guitar and play you know play my 10 chords and and come up with you know an approximation to give them 
um, and make make prettier. But um, the war was in color is another song um, that actually started from the idea as opposed to the music. Um, I had written down in, in my notebook just the line the war the war was in color and um, I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't know it was going to be a, if it was going to be a song or a poem or a story or or whatever. I had no idea. Um, and I think it sat there for, for several years. And then when Carter turned in a, a, a demo of this guitar riff, yeah, uh, he's the lead guitarist for everybody listening. Carter's the lead, Carter's our lead guitarist. And, um, and he, he turned in this, this, uh, this guitar uh, lick that just sounded like the type that it just, my mind automatically went to that, that line I wrote in the notebook the war was in color and i was like that you know and he didn't know about it he just is submitting music and i'm like that 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 hook that guitar part is the war was in color and so i i wrote that and um it's great when it's great when that happens because then all you need is kind of your melody and then everything writes itself you know where you're supposed to go with it then it's just kind of time in the water with the notebook you know yeah, it's like a puzzle putting it together a lot of times yeah. for me. Yeah. Trying to make the like if you have a if you have a main hook idea for a chorus and you're trying to build the the verses to make the chorus make sense. Or or sometimes it's the opposite. Yeah. But a lot of times I do end up sitting at a notebook trying to make you know, work out the rhymes and sometimes they don't work and you've got to somehow get your point across a different way. Yeah, and that is that is one of the toughest things to learn for, for me, is that I'll, you know, when you when you start thinking in term and that early on it was a big it was a big thing. Like, I'm still kind of I'm still fairly wordy, but like when I was our earlier stuff, it, things were like super wordy, and I wasn't taking into consideration the music side, you know, the consideration of less is more or hey people actually want to hear some of the music and not hear you singing over it <laughs> and then like what you're talking about where you when you realize some of those things but you've kind of set up you've kind of set up this template and you have to blow that out um that's tough yeah. so so i i try to i try to really keep that in mind more now about in terms of just mel you know melody first you know Melody first. Don't get locked into a, a rhyming or a, a lyric pattern. You know, really, really see how much that you can make the music breathe, and then and then try to fit your words around it. But I still struggle with that. I'm struggling. I'm struggling with one right now like that, where I'm like, you know, maybe I'm not writing enough because I'm forgetting some of those things. You know. Yeah. It's. it's it's a cool time to bring this up because um, Aaron has started a songwriting critique that uh, airs live on Friday nights once a month. That and, sounds uh, so terrifying. <laughs> sometimes it is. Sometimes it's uh, <laughs> it's it, it, it's 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 nice because you know sometimes we as artists put ourselves in this bubble, uh, and it's nice to hear an outside influence from you know other musicians, other artists, and, and how they hear and how they view your, your work. Uh, it kind of opens your mind in terms of, you know, things that you could work on and other directions that you might want to go or, 
Sure. It's it's definitely a cool process. A little nerving at sometimes, but <laughs> it's yeah. all good. it's all good in the end. Yeah. And anybody can submit to this. So yeah. Like I I wasn't actually on the recording. He had a panel of uh, teachers that sat in a room and listened to submissions. Yeah. And I actually sent mine in. I just emailed it to Aaron, and I got to listen to a critique of my song. It was a really cool thing. So any of our listeners out there. If you do have a song you're working on and you want feedback on it, you can send it in and, you know, five, six music instructors will actually critique your song and give you honest feedback. It's yeah. a really cool thing. and It's completely free. It's actually helpful to us if you submit songs. Yeah. Nice. Well, that's a brave yeah. act too, you know. I mean, um, to be able to expose yourself um, – to opinion yeah uh, it takes takes a lot of a lot of guts you know yeah yeah it does <laughs> <laughs> and especially if it's not a finished product right right well, like if it's just the demo you're you recording yeah and that's 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 a that's a tough line you know um that's that's a tough thing to determine uh, as the creator is is when to kind of share it with people and you know if you get in the habit of you have to understand kind of why you're wanting to share it. You know, if, if, if you're just looking for the ephemera of feeling good, you know, about someone's feedback, sometimes that can kind of blow up in your face. If, if you're, if you're not um, going through the revision process of what you're creating, you know, if you're not letting it to, if you're not letting it sit cold and kind of re revisiting it and kind of, and sharpening your own acumen, you know, for critique, mm that that's kind of that's my thing it's like i i've learned when it's time to share something and when it's not and you know if i can let something sit cold and, and come back and go good that that part's not good let me fix that you know and then when i feel like it's it's where it should be you know then then i'm kind of more apt to share it as opposed to like i don't know what do you think but th that's not saying that's that's wrong um because like you said, Aaron, you, you know, you, you might very well have a fresh perspective from someone else um, yeah. Yeah. that they're just not even thinking about. Yeah. And then, and then the one thing that I do um, and we, Joe and I were talking about this previous to, to the show is, is that we do give a short three minute synopsis of um, things that are, that we're aware of that, you know, we have mistakes. We are <laughs> all human beings. And like I, even I was saying it um, before I went through my submission, um, you know, I, am aware of things that I need to work on. And these are the things that I'm can hear in the song. And I'm sure you guys will agree as well. I'm just wondering if there are other things that you guys hear that I might not hear. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's like I said, it's nice to be able to hear what other people hear. Cause we are as in, as musicians, we kind of do get into these bubbles. Um, especially we have, as we gain a, a fan base or we have followers, um, we have a tendency for those followers just to praise everything that we do. Um, and likewise with friends and family, um, they kind of have a tendency to go, Oh no, that sounds great. That sounds great. I mean, it's kind of a biased opinion. You may not actually be getting the, the best feedback. Yeah. Well, 
and and starting out that may be the feedback that they need the most though is just encouragement to keep going right um and that's where the facilitative language comes into play and you're like you know <laughs> i really like this part you know <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah. more yep. like that more like this part here yep <laughs> the facilitative language is such a good that's a great phrase yeah yeah, it's great for any line of work, but it is especially important in songwriting. Yeah, and can, you know, and, and when you're young, and we've worked with you know we've worked with young people before, um, both just on board as as team and crew members, and uh, but just in dealing with with younger musicians, well, well, young and old people, but just young in their art. Um, really doubling down on on the encouragement and picking out the things that you think are inspiring and great can be can go so much further than just be like you know this is you know you got some problems here you know <laughs> it's like, you know that's tough that's tough to take yeah i try to do that in my private lessons with my students i'll listen to something and something will irk me throughout their whole like <laughs> you know, they're playing the song they worked on and I have to take a breath and I'm like, okay, this part was great. You did, your rhythm was great or your dynamic, something. I try to, I try to force myself to say yeah. something really nice before I dig in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To try to like, you know, make them feel like I'm not just attacking them. Yeah. And that, and the, the, that less, the lesson realm is probably very difficult too, because there's, there's, I'm sure there's so much there that, um, is not necessarily a hundred percent effort sometimes. I mean, if I remember back when I was taking lessons and, you know, I'd show up because I had it scheduled, but I didn't do, didn't really rehearse and practice. I mean, that you've, then you've got the, the instructor there that clearly knows oh, yes. that you haven't put in the time and, you know, you want to, you want to, you want to tell them the truth that you're wasting both our time and I'm just taking your money right now. And, you know, two weeks will pass and we will have been talking about the same thing. Yeah. That's tough. Um, uh, but if I imagine, imagine your job is easier, like you say about picking the stuff that's encouraging if, if they're really like working at it, you know, and you feel like they're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you're being paid by their parents often to make them get better. So you do have to, you're like, I feel like I'm under the, if the kid doesn't improve, I feel like I'm at fault. And so it, it, you do feel like you need to, you have to bring up the negatives though. Oh yeah. Because yeah. you're their coach. Yeah. Right. But I, I want to go back to you. You said you took um, lessons. Were you taking voice lessons? <laughs> or what, what were you, a, what, what is your musical for a hot origin? Um, I don't really have a musical origin. Um, uh, you know, it was just kind of, um, uh, you know, I, t I took, I took piano for three years when I was, you know, 10, 11 and 12. I took trumpet when I was 11, 12, 13. Uh -huh. I picked up, you know, the guitar, you know, a half dozen times between, you know, my you know, 15 years old and 30 years old. And, you know, um, only just sang you know a little bit in the choir when i was a kid you know at church um mm -hmm. didn't really start 
doing any kind of singing um, until college just fell into the band. So I don't really have a whole lot of, um, I don't have a whole lot of musical growth um, from a young age. Um, I'm a more of a utilitarian kind of musician, you know, or not even a musician, I guess. I'm just kind of facilitating music. Sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm the lyric writer, I'm, I'm the vocalist. Yeah. I can kind of, I can kind of get to A to B, but there's definitely a difference in my, my skill level um, in, in terms of a vo vocalist with real vocalists out there, you know, I mean, it's, it's clear to, it's cl you can clearly hear the difference um, that probably comes from, you know, a lifetime of, of devoting to it. Uh, but also just um, in my, in my daily routines, I have a finite amount of time um, where things need to happen. And so I try to schedule singing time for myself when we're off the road. Um, but you know, it's, it's probably an, it's an hour to an hour and a half as opposed to what should be like four hours or five hours, you know, um, but there's um, at a certain point, you're just like, this is what I have time mm -hmm. for. These are the priorities. Um, so I, I, it's funny that, and I regret, I regret not keeping up with piano and I love the piano. And I still have fantasies about like getting back into it and learning, but I still relate everything to, um, you know, to the treble and bass clef, you know, it's like I, when I, when I, I can still read music and I still, when I, when I hear notes or if I'm working through things, I still relate it to how they lay down on the piano keyboard. So that's good. It's fascinating to me that you don't have you your voice is so um you have a very clear um like it's a powerful voice it's not like an operatic voice but like you you're not um like it's a very pleasing voice i don't know how else to say it but it's <laughs> it's a warm it's like if anthony kiedis from the chili peppers had a cleaner like a like a stronger clearer voice to me but it's in that realm of like male baritone yeah it's a like you're not getting up into falsetto you're like you have a very yeah it's a nice yeah i enjoy it thanks yeah, but it's surprising me that you weren't didn't have any training because it does sound polished i um i i i, I kind of work in my limitations you know um but um i took i took lessons from a guy at vcu for a, i don't know a year or two and this was back when we were first starting to tour um um and we would we weren't even touring we were just kind of like the weekend warriors at that point and coming out of college where we would go and play fraternity houses on thursday friday saturday nights and then i'd come back in for my lesson on monday and and back back then when you played these college gigs you these fraternity things you would play from 10 to 2 that was like the contract it was always the contract 10 10 p.m to 2 a.m yeah. and we would play that whole thing we were basically then we were a cover band and we would play we would play um that whole time except for a 120 minute break and um 
yeah, it was just like, I, you know, could never do that now, but when you're 21, yeah, yeah. you just kind of do it. Yeah. But, um, that's and, typical. We were playing, <laughs> and we were playing like really, you know, just, 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 you know, just anything under the sun, but it was very taxing on the vocals. And so I'd show up to Monday with, you know, at the piano, you know, with the teacher and he'd be trying to teach me the proper way of breathing and singing. And we'd be doing all these show tunes and, and my voice was, my voice was smoked. And I mean, I could just tell that he was just like, he'll, he'll do it. He'll show up. He'll book and bill me, but it, it is not doing me any good. So I had to give that up. Sometimes a little, when I took uh, voice lessons, the first couple lessons, just learning how to breathe properly made me significantly better. Like there was, there's never been a spike as big as the, from the first few vocal lessons of having someone teach me how to properly breathe. Right. So there's some quick, I feel like anybody could benefit from, from a few vocal lessons. I know and the breathing thing is the hardest thing. And I, and I know it's, it, it's kind of like stretching or yoga. It's like once, if you do it once you're like, Oh, well, clearly I'm just going to do this every day. Cause this is the easiest path towards getting stronger and better and all. And then, and of course you're like, well, I only have 30 minutes. So let me just do like this really hard, you know, let me just sing really hard for 30 minutes. Cause that'll like, <laughs> that'll be, that'll be, uh, I'll cover, I know I'll, I'll I know I need to sing hard. Let's just do that. We'll skip this breathing and stretching part. Um, uh, mm. But you're right. Um, if I just had five hours to do it, I'd be a better singer. For a lot, a lot of a lot of my job, I've kind of learned it's it's. If I'm singing by myself in a room, I'm not. I'm definitely not like a real ornate singer. But if I'm singing in a room by myself, you know, it is definitely more, um, um, there is, there is more nuance, but when I'm playing in the band, my, my, it's, it's a, um, it's a different beast. You're basically, you're trying to get your vocal to kind of cut through all mm -hmm. of this stuff on stage. Mm -hmm. And, um, even just the physical proximity of where I am on stage between two guitarists and then the drummer and the in the bass amp behind me um you know your voice becomes all of a sudden you know the resonance just kind of starts going like this and then before you know it your your voice is like this and you're just you're just trying to shoot your voice through everything you know um and so that 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 and over time that that really trains your voice to kind of act a certain way as opposed to like a singer songwriter who's sitting there playing and singing. It's a different thing. Uh, out of curiosity, um, do you guys use uh, an in-ear monitor system or anything like that on stage? Yeah, we do. Um, and that certainly helps. We went 10 years without them right. when we started out. And then we were, you know, 2002, when we started really touring a lot and started noticing the ear fatigue, um, we switched to ears. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that saved our hearing, saved my hearing. Um, yeah. and, um, but it's still, it's still not, um, it's still not the same as just singing in a room. 
right, you know? right, right. You've got these, you've got these impressions that are going down into your canal. So you're now, yes, you're hearing sound coming through those, but you're also hearing the bones in your head, and your singing is informed by how you know the sound is resonating uh, in your in your head. You know, if you if you plug plug your ears, you're going to hear different a different your voice reacting in a different way that you can't just simulate with just putting sound through the ear monitors. Right. So there's concessions you just have to make. Huh. Um, do you feel like while you're on tour, do you actually do you ever get hoarse or deal with uh, like vocal fatigue that you think hurts your performance? yeah um so yes the um and I, I just actually purchased a new set of ears like i've gone through five different companies you know for ear monitors trying to find like this this perfect thing but um the the reality is there's there's certain there's certain parts of my range that will get that will get fatigued or blown out and um you know kind of I'll start to get real reedy in certain spots um that said when we go on tour let's say we go on tour like we'll go we'll leave monday for a month and um the you know the the first three or four days are tough like day four is like really tough because your schedule's different and you're you're performing live for for two hours a night um and uh once you get to that fourth day, um, you've kind of got day four, day five, where things are kind of shaky. And then from there, though, once you get to day six or day seven, you're kind of over that hump. And then by day, day 10, you're bulletproof. And so from there, you can do 30, 30 days in a row and and do everything you want to do for the most part. I'll lose, I'll lose I'll lose some, I'll lose some notes at the top of my range. You know, if we're doing like a 30 day run, there's certain songs that I know I'll have to alter the melody on a few places mm -hmm. to not completely destroy me for subsequent days. So that's just kind of the reality there. But yeah, once you get, once you can kind of, if you can do four or five days in a row and push and get through that, then um, you can do, you know you can do 30 days in a row and we, and we do that usually because um just taking days off is um just costly and a couple of guys that are married want to get back so instead of spending you know eight weeks out west we will do it in four and we'll trim out a lot of the um in between places and we'll drive through the night to get to you know where we want to get and just keep keep pushing and, and frankly when you get to a point where you're just going every night it's easier to do that than to take a day off right and what do you do on a day off you guys like go hike or you know if you're like driving around out west do you do anything together as a group or do you write yeah, songs so, so last year we did 28 shows in, in 30 days out west and usually if it's a day off you're driving say like let's say you're you're driving from you know austin to phoenix you know right. so it's a drive day um so there's not a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of luxury there 
we used to have back when we had more days off when we were on the road more when we you know that when we were younger and we didn't have obligations back home and life was a little simpler yeah we would you know we would have the sit down breakfasts and we would you know tool around a bit but uh it's not as it's not as romantic like that these days everybody just relaxes on the bus and everyone's got their own space on the bus yeah and um i mean i'm i manage the band so i'm i'm usually working i mean you know get up exercise in the parking lot and fix breakfast and you know while we're rolling and and then just manage things on the road um the guys you know if if we're we drive ourselves so you know whoever's driving the shift um otherwise guys you know sleep or they you know read or do whatever they do kind of in their own in their own worlds so 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 since you manage and do most of the legwork um you're talking about touring and and setting up 30-day gigs um how do you go about that process is, is is that something that you do all on your own in terms of reaching out to venues and then you know setting up the the path of that tour or how does that yeah. so we have um each of us has several duties within the band you know um terry does a lot you know has been doing a lot of the social media marketing stuff and um, mm-hmm. um and then i in terms of the booking goes, uh, I, we have a booking agent. That's, that's the one person that we, that, that we have, um, that actually gets the contracts. Um, I will, I will take the year. I'll, I'll print out, I'll print out, um, every month of calendar of the year and I will post a note where I want to be on what uh, night, what city I want to be in what night throughout the whole year. We'll say, look, this is when we're going to be in this region of the country. And we map it out Mm. like that. So, um, and, and, and then I will, you know, I will give that to our agent and say, this is, let's, let's pursue this. And he takes my calendar um, of the cities on the nights that we want January through December. And he goes about pursuing the contracts or getting the holds for the venues, which is, which is, which is, that's tough that's that's that is a lot of work because there's thousands of bands yes <laughs> competing competing for the same you know three venues worth playing in in san francisco you know right like, yep yeah you know you you, ju- you you try to jump in early as possible but you know you could be fifth hold or fourth hold behind three other acts that need to you know either you know clear the date or you know, say we're confirming it. So it's this, it's this, it's this big kind of amorphous thing. If something doesn't work out in that city for you, then you kind of have to shift your strategy, you know, for the week. And maybe you want to move San Francisco to a different night, which means you've got to, you know, deal with LA and deal with Portland and you know everything that's, that's along your route. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we do a pretty good job, you know, between with that system, we get about 85% of what we want um in terms of the city and the night and then how uh, on average and obviously that fluctuates how um in terms of your gigging schedule and your touring schedule how often or how many dates a year do you generally like to tour right so at our peak um 
back when we were touring behind Indian Summer, which was released in um, 2004 and was getting radio play. Um, Did that have Lifeless Ordinary on it? Lifeless Ordinary was kind of the single at the time and it was getting, it was doing well at AAA radio and then it was getting traction at um, Hot AC radio, which, which opens up your opportunities uh, and, and also really jams your schedule. So and that was back in the day when you could tour behind a successful album for like two years. Right. You know, it was just, it was, it was, um, it was a lot. So, so when I think at our peak, we were, we did like 250 days a year out on the road. Right. Wow. Um, now we're like, um, now we've drilled down to about uh, 80 to hundred sh- t- days out on the road. Okay. And most of those are shows. Like I said, we don't do a whole lot of days off. So if we're out, we're playing and, um, unless we're driving somewhere. Um, so we kind of slashed a lot of the, uh, fat off of the tour, you know, and yep. a lot of the, a lot of the just, just, just said goodbye to a lot of markets and, and, uh, do typically now we do a big fall kind of September through December is when we'll do, okay. um, the kind of U S and then in the, the spring, we do kind of a handful of, of shows in kind of secondary markets. Um, usually everything kind of west of the Mississippi. Okay. I mean, east of the Mississippi. Okay. So anything more than that really like um, creates a lot of tension with, um, you know, again, three of the guys are married with kids. So there's right. a balance, a balance you've got to strike there. And, um, you know, and also, frankly, you know, your creative output suffers if you're just on the road all the time. And even now, you know, 80 days is too, you know, is <laughs> feels like too much sometimes. I mean, to put on to, to, to coordinate 100 days, you know, when you're self-managed um, is, is, you know, not just 100 days of tour, but 100 days of prepar- uh, preparation for that tour. Right. So it's just less time that you have to create and, and all. So that's, that's something we're trying to address is, is to um, get some extra help to help us cover some of that legwork so that we can spend more time in this, in the studio that we, you know, built creating. Right. How, no. when you play venues, are you typically paid on the door or are, do you have a, How's payment usually structured for these types of, of venues? It depends. Um, typically, you shoot for a guarantee versus a percentage over a certain amount of whatever the house nut is. Um, some venues, if you're, you know, not a proven thing in the market, or or they're not, um, they're not into doling out guarantees. Sometimes you just do the. Um, you'll do a door deal. Um, so it, it really depends on where you are in the market and kind of what you can negotiate. Mm-hmm. But typically we like to get a guarantee and then, and then if it reverts, you know, and then it reverts over um, a certain, a certain uh, percentage of the door. So when you go, I mean, if you go out and play somewhere kind of out West, do you, do, do the crowds, what are your crowds like in smaller places? Do you have people that just come out that you've never 
that have heard of you and you actually can fill up a place in a small town out west? Yeah, um, it's funny. We can, it seems like now we can kind of go just about anywhere and they're like, it'll be a hundred people at the very, at the very least. Right. Um, which is still not terrific, but then again, it's, it's not nothing. Right. Right. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, on nights like that, where you're, you know, you are in between your major markets, it certainly, it covers your bottom line, if nothing else, um, covers your expenses for the day, puts a little bit of money in your pocket. So those, those can actually strategically, you know, add up. Um, and, you know, the, the, the days of where just people randomly like come out to check you out, you know, there's not tons of that business. Um, some places are more than others like Phoenix. You know, if we play Phoenix, there'll be, there'll, there'll be a good amount of people that are just there checking you out. Mm. Um, uh, but, but mostly it's just, it's fans that, um, that know you're coming, coming to town. So, um, you know, on the low side, that's, you know, you get a hundred people in the door, um, on the, on the high side out West, you know, Seattle's a, a good market for us. So we'll do uh, this fall. We'll do, um, uh, one night at a standing rock venue, which is, I think, um, six fifty or 700 people. And we usually sell that out. And then the next day we'll do a seated cabaret venue, which is like 300 seats. And we'll do two shows back to back on that on the following day. So that's a good weekend for us in Seattle and play in front of a lot of your fans and do two different types of shows and a, a, a kind of big electric rock show. And then the, the seated acoustic shows and, um, you know, make, make, make good money and, and all that. Um, Portland's usually like three fifty, four hundred people. Um, you know, LA is like 150, um, San Fran's like 300. Um, and then uh, San Diego is going to be like 125, 150. Um, is, that, is that because you guys, like your music doesn't connect with that the people in that region or because you haven't toured that area as much to build up a fan base over time? Yeah. Um, and a lot of it has to do with um, how much, uh, you know, Seattle's Seattle, Portland, um, San Diego, um, uh, Boise, Spokane, all those, all those, some of those places um, out west. We were did uh, Denver. We were getting good radio play um, for a couple of years, and that mm -hmm. and that that helped uh, jumpstart the yep. audience. Yep, yep. Um, that also has actually ebbed you know, after those kind of couple of years of activity where you, all your shows were backed by heavy radio promotion, you know, where they were sponsoring the events and you got just tons of mentions. I mean, you still can't, you still can't, you still can't compete with that kind of reach. You know, I mean, if someone's, if you've have, if a radio station has listeners and their station sponsoring the event and they're mentioning it, I mean, that goes a long way. Right. Once that kind of goes away, you know, you, the you shuck away a lot of those people and then you're kind of left with your your fans but the fans that you're left with are are really dedicated and, and you know i can i can predict pretty accurately by now 
who's going to show up just by our email list, right? which is a great place to be um, if, if you don't have the outside promotion. So, um, but, but Seattle, we got a lot of, we got a lot of support and it's a great town, you know, so we're lucky to have that kind of as a cornerstone. San Diego, on the other hand, and we, we got good play there. And, and um, over the years, that audience has kind of come down a bit. I'm wondering, I don't know, if is it more, is it more of a transient town? Did like the fans that, you know, were coming into those, you know, those early shows, did they kind of move away? Because right. um, it's, it's probably like maybe half of what it used to be. And then do you see any, um, do you see any, anything come from things like, I know you guys have done things like Curious George, or you have like commercial uh, type stuff that you've done for like Pontiac or something like that. Do you see any return from any of that? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think it all kind of adds but it's not like any of that stuff is ever a um, game changer. No, 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 no. You know, and frankly, the Curious George, I mean, that was, yeah, we, on the surface, we got paid well. But when you actually break it down into the amount of work that you put into it over the time, you know, it's not like it's just, again, it's not like it's a, it's a game changer. It's just one, it's just one more thing that you can add right. you know, to, to the story um the pontiac vibe thing i mean we didn't see any kind of spikes we got paid really well for not doing anything what mm. we won a contest you know and <laughs> got paid twenty thousand dollars to win a contest and they put the song on the, on the commercial but that's uh, nice <laughs> yeah but you know that was back that was kind of back in the dot-com era era when when you know the 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 internet was still kind of becoming a thing yeah and, you know, in 2000 and, you know, in, two th in 99 and 2000, 2001, 2002, it's like everybody was having these contests. All these websites were having contests. Enter, enter, enter these, you know, enter this band contest. Yeah. And we entered, and Terry, our, our guitarist, and at the time he was working at a recording studio. And in his off time, he would sit there on the computer and he would just enter all these contests, you know, and you'd have to upload an MP3, which took like, you know, an hour <laughs> and, and he'd fill out, you know, fill out a form and upload a song. And, um, there was, there was real, they were giving away real money. I mean, we, it's how we won the 20th grand off Pontiac and, and, um, it's how we, you know, it, it got entered into the AMA contest. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a different era, but it was, it was there for the taking. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely uh, the music scene has definitely changed over the past. And you guys <clears throat> talking about you st had started in '93, uh, 25 years. You know, <clears throat> it's it's changed many many times. What, how how do you see it currently in terms of the whole streaming and um, the very um, social media centric right now it's uh it's very much a different landscape yeah i mean to kind of the traditional marketing has changed you know where you know just where we were talking about all this you know, this promotion you know where you could win contests on the internet and and 
um, all of a sudden, you know, it meant something to kind of be endorsed by someone uh, or, or, um, you know, that American Music Award contest that we entered and and became a finalist. And then we went on this big tour promotion and it was sponsored by Coca-Cola. And all of a sudden, nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd, you know. Um, I feel like a lot of that's kind of, a lot of that's gone away. And uh, there's so much competing for people's attention and entertainment dollar. You, you know, t- 10 or 15 years ago, you, 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 f- you really focused on trying to throw the net, uh, t- you know, in search of, of search of new fish, you know, you spend right. a lot of time and money really, uh, looking in, in places. And, um, you know, when we, when we realized you could spend the rest of your life and money going into the whole doing that strategy, you know, was that going to be the best, the best thing for us? And in 2010, when we'd kind of run the course of the record label, when they weren't offering really anything, Mm. Um, other than just, you know, m- money to make a record uh, with no real true marketing plan or, or muscle or reach. You know, we, we decided let's build our own studio. Let's bring things, let's rein things in like we used to do. Let's stop, you know, investing in all of this overhead and team. And let's see, let's see where the ceiling is with just being as autonomous as we can Mm. and let's stay solvent let's not go into debt and we did and um you know we set a goal of of making a a new piece of music every eight months so in 2010 we built the studio um and we just started releasing records directly to our fans. And in short, we were like, let's just pay attention to the people that are paying attention to us already and see what happens. We'll let the audience, our audience know um, that we've accumulated the last 15 years, that we're serious artists, that we're gonna be writing and recording and touring and join us on this journey. And um, and so that's that's how we've had to combat kind of how do you compete in a in a in an industry where there's just there's so much noise there's there's competition coming from every every corner and um and and i guess the answer was let's not compete with that um there's limitations i mean you know we, we're we're playing to a much more concentrated audience mm-hmm. And um, and it'd be nice to have more marketing dollars, but it's it's hard to know kind of where to put that right now. So we're just trying to control what we can, and um, and then if an opportunity opens up, we'll hopefully we'll be in a good position to make make those adjustments. That is going to do it for today for part one of two with Barry Privet of Carbon Leaf. If you haven't already, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. The more reviews, the more we have the opportunity to continue having great quality guests. Also, don't forget, we do have a YouTube channel where you can find the entire library of all the guests and topics that we've talked about. 
And lastly, if you haven't already, head over to fretbuzzthepodcast.com and sign up, subscribe, check out the songwriting club, and come join us. Cool. Next Thursday it is, part two with Barry Privet of Carbon Leaf on Fret Buzz, the podcast. <laughs>